This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 5. This is the section commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It's rich with moral teachings that Jesus uses to point people to the root of the problem, our sinful hearts. Today we'll focus on deception. I don't know anyone that likes to be lied to. We find that deeply offensive for a variety of reasons. But when push comes to shove, it's shocking just how easily we choose lying to get out of trouble. Jesus knows all about this part of our human nature, our fallen nature, and he's got a lot to say about it, as we'll find out in this first half of Pastor's message on how to handle deception. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. I watched an interesting experiment the other day. Researchers mounted a Velcro target on the wall in a room and drew a line seven feet away and recruited a group of ten five- to seven-year-old children, and they instructed the kids to throw darts at the target from behind the line. Each child got three attempts, but what the researchers did is they divided the group into two groups, and they told the first group of kids that an invisible adult was in the room refereeing in the attempts. They told the other group no one was watching. The researchers observed that the children in the first group played by the rules because they were under the impression they were told that there was an adult watching them. The other group cheated. Besides the questionable ethics of a study that deceives its participants in the name of science, this experiment concluded what the Bible has affirmed for millennia. And that is that deception is a part of human nature since Adam fell into sin, according to Genesis 3. And I wonder if the researchers considered the irony of an experiment that deceives children to evaluate how deceptive these children can be. In their viewpoint, lying to them was necessary. So such a substandard ethical system operates almost subconsciously in our minds. We created terms for these things. For example, half-truths or white lies. And we use deception subconsciously sometimes when we think that we will receive some sort of benefit or self-promotion or to get out of trouble. And that is the reason why we demand everything in writing. Think about this. If none of us were sinners, then contracts would be obsolete. But the Bible says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and that's in 1 John 5, 9. And God does not see deception as casually as we do. In other words, his standard of ethics is much higher than ours. Case in point, Proverbs 12, verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And this is his verdict on deception, according to Revelation 21, verse 8. That text says, liars will have their part in the lake of fire. And that verse, my friends, indicts me, and it should indict you too, because we are liars by nature. If you ever told one lie, that makes you a liar, and along with every person in the world. But that verse reminds me, if it weren't for my Savior dying on a cross to redeem me, my final destination would have been the lake of fire. So thank God for His grace. 
Now, Christ has something to say about deception. And by the time Jesus addresses this issue here, he has already established a pattern. And the pattern is this. He is confronting false religion. He is confronting the hypocritical system of the scribes and Pharisees who took Old Testament truth, modify that truth to suit their fancies, to create a substandard of ethics, a substandard of religion, one that focuses on the outside, and Jesus is confronting that head-on, tearing the facade and telling them, your system is corrupt. In fact, again, Matthew 5, verse 20, is our key verse for the entire Sermon on the Mount. Let me remind you once again that Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is tearing down that system and clarifying to people the real deal, the real righteousness that is by faith and the ethics of that system. And that system guides or should guide our actions because it flows from a transformed heart. You see the scribes and Pharisees picking up from tradition from centuries before perpetuated that corrupt system that failed to address the heart. And Jesus says, no, 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 true religion, true righteousness comes from a transformed heart. And that transformed heart guides your words and actions. And, and this is how you need to live by that standard of righteousness that is by grace through faith. So he presents the precepts of the kingdom because he is the majestic Savior. You know, you remember this, Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews, who is the King of Kings, and therefore now chapters 5 through 7 of his gospel, he gives us the precepts of that King, the majestic Savior, the first portion of discourse in the book of Matthew. And here it is. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, let's talk about how to handle deception according to Christ. And he says this, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. And therefore, this is how he teaches us how to handle the issue of deception, which comes from the heart. Remember, all of these things come from an unregenerate heart. And Jesus Christ is addressing how we are supposed to deal with this. Subjects of the kingdom of heaven, born again, believers in Christ. And in order to make his case here, he gives us a three-point outline, very simple. He gives us the pattern, the problem, and the principle. So we will start with the pattern here in verse 33 concerning the issue of how to handle deception. Here's the pattern that Jesus presents. And we know that there's a pattern because he starts this entire paragraph with the word again. And by doing this, he calls the attention of his audience to the common theme of the Sermon on the Mount so far. God's ethical standards, which are significantly higher than men's because it addresses the heart. Men will put the standard way down here so that something we can meet in order to say, ha, I earned my way to heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, you cannot earn your way to heaven because my standard is a lot higher than yours. And it addresses the heart and he contrasts then pharisaical corruption of scripture with the pure teaching of the word of God that he provides. So he's not contrasting Old Testament truth with what he's saying. He is putting the Old Testament where it belongs. And we know that this is truth because of his formula. He says, you heard this. 
Instead of saying, it is written. When he wanted to quote Old Testament in Matthew 4, he says, it is written. But here he says this formula in this chapter. You heard this, but I say that. And by the way, that's the reason the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Matthew tells us in chapter 7, verse 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. What he means by that is Jesus is not quoting any theologian. He doesn't have to do that because he is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. And he mentions the ancients one more time. The ancients were the rabbis of old who corrupted the Mosaic law into man-made systems of religion. And the scribes and Pharisees perpetuated this hypocritical tradition. And Jesus now presents or exposes here a, a common misinterpretation of Leviticus 19 verse 12 and also Numbers 30 verse 2. Let me read them to you. Leviticus 19 verse 12 reads this. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of God. I am the Lord. And in Numbers 30 verse 2 says this, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with the binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds. Now, the problem that Jesus is addressing here is that the ancient rabbis misapplied these verses in order to suit their fancies, like I said before, and they came up with a list of enforceable and non-enforceable oaths based on whether or not they wanted to keep their promise, and they would invoke testimonies of their oaths. So, in other words, the truthfulness of one's word would vary according to the rank of the witness that they would invoke. For example, heaven, earth, or Jerusalem, or oneself. So they could swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, depending on how they intended to keep their promises. And they created a false hierarchy in their vows and oaths and say, well, if I swear by heaven, then I really mean it. If I swear by the earth, I sort of mean it and so forth. Now, the scribes and Pharisees during Jesus' time caught up to that and taught others that the only binding vows that counted were the ones that invoked the name of God. And it didn't occur to them that by associating God's name with such a deceptive practice, they violated the third commandment of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which reads this, Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So by invoking God's name on the condition that that is the only word that I'm going to keep, they were violating the third commandment, and Jesus is clear about that. So according to this pharisaical philosophy, any lesser witness to an oath, anyone less than God would somehow grant people a pass on speaking the truth. The name for that church is premeditated deception. And by doing this, they defrauded people and they dishonored God because of their hypocritical system. Once again, Jesus reminds everyone, unless your righteousness surpasses that substandard ethical system, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because the kingdom of heaven could be obtained by speaking the truth, but by coming to Christ and having a transformed heart. And then the natural consequence of that is you will have a transformed attitude because the heart has been changed. Now, let me point out to you again that that's not by coincidence that he brings up this issue right after the problem of divorce that he addresses in Matthew 5, verse 32. And he's saying to everybody, well, you are not keeping your vows. Just by signing a paper, the certificate of divorce, you are breaking your vows. You are therefore dishonoring God. You are taking God's name in vain because most likely you have invoked the name of God as a witness. So, 
That's the issue that Jesus is addressing. That's the pattern. And although we live in different times, a modern equivalent of a frivolous vow, for example, would be the expression, I swear by my mother's grave. It provides a modern example of a similarly frivolous vow because such a device is an emotional appeal to somehow boost the credibility as if by invoking the witness of a dead person. That would make your promise serious. Let's think about the silliness of that. First of all, a dead person cannot serve as a witness against you if you don't speak the truth because dead people don't see anything in earth. And even if your mother is in heaven, your mother wouldn't testify against you because moms are irrationally biased for their children. Just like the mom who testifies in court about the serial killer son and says, no, he's not a bad person. He's just a victim of circumstances, a victim of a bad upbringing or the victim of of the society. So your mother's not omniscient, although you better obey your mom because she knows better. But the point is, that is a, that is a silly way to appeal to emotion, to sort of boost your credibility, to say, now, I really mean it. I'm swearing by my mother's grave. Don't do that. This is what Jesus is saying because that is silly. Only God sees what's in your heart. And let me remind you of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord looks at the heart. So before you even utter a word, God knows whether you mean it or not. God knows the evil intent of your heart or the pure intents of your heart. So there's no need for you to say something like this. Uh, Even if you change this vow to say, no, okay, well, let me swear on my mother's life, then no, that still doesn't count. You might as well cross your fingers. Because, again, your mother is not omnipresent. She doesn't know the real intention of your heart or anyone else by that matter. So this doesn't mean anything. You might as well, again, cross your fingers. Now consider the relevance of the Word of God again. Just like the scribes and Pharisees, We are tempted to only fulfill our promises conditionally when as long as doing so advocates our agenda, for example, or improves the self-image or the image we want to portray. Politicians are very skilled at that. So in verse 33 here, to summarize the entire thing here, what Jesus is doing, he's exposing hypocritical religion. He's exposing a system that allows deception based on meaningless vowels, the formalities that actually don't mean anything, the solemnity, the false solemnity with their words, outward-focused spirituality, worldliness dressed up in the cloak of godliness because the people who were invoking these frivolous vows were already bent on not fulfilling their vows according to however they word their, their vows. Case in point, the marriage violation, the issue that Jesus just talked about and we covered last week. So Jesus identifies the pattern and exposes their, their evil heart concerning deception. But look at the problem, verses 34 through 36. After confronting more of these rabbinical teachings here, he pinpoints the real issue. And he's saying this, you make promises you don't intend to keep and you use frivolous, silly oaths to give the impression of formality, to give us a false sense of solemnity. And according to that hypocritical system, people would break their promises. They were allowed to break their promises and say this, now, I'm off the hook because I didn't swear by God on this one. I only swore by Jerusalem, so I'm okay. Or they would say, well, the reason I told you I have truth is because I only swore by the earth. You see, you didn't catch me. If I would have sworn by heaven, then I would have meant it. Now, can you think, church, of anything more treacherous than this? This kind of thinking should never cross the mind of a Christian, should never cross the mind of a subject of the kingdom of heaven. And you would say, Pastor, I would never do something so silly. 
Well, that may be true because of the difference in culture, but here's how that convoluted rationale creeps into our reality today. We only think our word is good if we put it in writing. We only think that our word is good if we write it on a contract. And for this reason, many people think that verbal commitments somehow are less important or less binding than your written word. And the truth is, church, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are a subject of the kingdom of heaven, your word is your bond, okay? It, it, whether you put it in writing or not, whether you say the formalities or not, you me must mean what you say and you must vow to commit the truth without sounding the trumpet of a solemn oath. You just vow in your heart to speak the truth, whether you put it in writing or not. An age of quick divorce. To keep with the context here of the immediate issues, that the related issues that Jesus is dealing with, husband and wife-to-be say all the formalities and make promises to stay together in the presence of people, in the presence of a minister usually, and in the presence of the state. They sign a paper and they invoke God, most likely, and they say this, we will stay together until death separates us. What they really mean is this, we will stay together until convenience separates us. Or as long as the butterflies in my stomach are still flying. Or until I find someone else who's better looking or makes me happier. Once again, church, that is called premeditated deception. And that's the reason we normally recommend here at Grace Baptist Church, don't rush to get married. Only tie the knot if you are ready to keep your promise to your potential spouse at all costs, no matter what happens. Furthermore, we don't want to make any commitments we don't intend to keep. Now, we need to explain what we mean by this because this doesn't mean that you are forever bound to serve in a local church in a particular ministry when you sign up. Everybody understands the need to change, the need to refocus, the need to rethink and take a break. What we mean by that, by fulfilling your vows, to fulfilling your verbal commitment is this, you are there by the time you said you would be there because there are people counting on you. A verbal commitment means that. You show up when you said you would, unless something happens, in which case you notify the people who need to know. Everybody understands emergency. Everybody understands the need to rechannel your energy and to focus on something else. You're not in violation of a principle here if you need to do that. Same is true if you are in a job and you need to change careers for one reason or another. It doesn't mean you're wrong if you do it right. If, if you tell you, you fulfill your contract, you fulfill your duties, and then you say to your boss, listen, I've been thinking and it's time for me to change. And of course, you're free to do that if you do it the right way. And speaking of a job situation, years ago, I read the story. This is a true story. I read the story of a young man who was hired by the sales department of a company. And his boss promised him a bunch of things in their contract, a one-year contract, including a bonus if the yearly quota was met which the young man, the employee, actually exceeded. So the boss called him to his office one day and told him this, I know I promised you this amount last year, and you excelled in your position, but I'm sorry to say the company can't pay you your bonus. And you may have experienced a situation like that before. This is very common. This is not uncommon today. But before the employee could say anything in protest, that manager continued, and he said, but listen, I made you a promise. And he handed that employee a personal check for the amount of the bonus that he had promised. 
That is a man of integrity. That is a boss we need to imitate. And that is a boss we need to work for because that is a man who understands the power of his word. He understands this principle here that Jesus is talking about. You don't have to make a promise, but when you do, you follow that promise and you fulfill your commitment because your word is your bond. It shouldn't even cross our minds if we're believers in Christ, subjects of the kingdom of heaven. shouldn't even cross our minds to modify that. And by the way, God's going to hold everybody by this standard. It doesn't mean that Christians should live by this standard and non-Christians get a pass on that. No, they're going to be judged by that. The the difference is that believers in Christ, God will say, I remember no more of your sins because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and therefore he saved you, my son Jesus Christ saved you by his grace. So this man here, this boss that I'm talking to you about is an extremely rare boss and uh, he's someone that David might as well have been describing when he talks like this in Psalm 15 verse 4. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. Meaning, the guy keeps his promise even if it's costly. Even if it hurts. And he tells the truth at all costs. Even if it makes him embarrassed. Even if it's incriminating. Telling the truth is costly. It may bring a temporary inconvenience, but you will honor God in the long run. And God, therefore, will honor you back. That reminds me of Joseph's brothers, for example, in the Bible. Their story starts in Genesis 36, 37 there. And they concluded that speaking the truth concerning their betrayal to their father was too high a price to pay. And as a result, they decided to invent a story about the death of Joseph. And that story brought excessive sorrow to Jacob and Rachel. You, you may remember the story. But the good news is that God redeemed that whole situation and brought forgiveness and reconciliation decades later. Uh, And that is to illustrate the point that, according to Jesus, the standard that he requires for subjects of the kingdom of heaven is as high because it matches the integrity and the ethics of our Savior. And it says, you need to live by that standard. And by the way, you can't attain to that standard on your own. You need a Savior to equip you for that. But what you're not to do, as he's saying, is follow the scribes and Pharisees, the religion that is based on outward performance, that leaves the heart untouched. And one specific example of that is those premeditated deception, those meaningless and frivolous vows that people would use to impress others, to say, look, I used beautiful words. I used, you know, this solemn vow, and therefore my word counts. And by the way, this vow here that I didn't keep is because I didn't use those words. And Jesus is saying, think about the silliness of that. Now, in verse 34 here, Jesus is not forbidding taking oaths in certain cases. I mean, if that's the case, I violated that because when I was sworn in as an American citizen years ago, I took an oath. And some of you have taken oaths before when you served in public office or you, if you served as a juror, you took an oath. I did that a couple months ago and I was required to take an oath. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't ever take an oath. And the reason we know that is because he qualifies his statement on verse 34. He says, make no oath at all. And he gives the examples of the oaths that people were doing. Don't use those, he's saying. And the point is for subjects of the kingdom of heaven, speaking the truth shouldn't be a problem anyway. So if asked to raise your right hand or place it on the Bible or to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, your heart attitude should be like this if you're a believer in Christ. Of course I do. That's my standard anyway. Even without the formalities or with the threat of prosecution for perjury, 
I have no other option but to tell the truth because I have been set free by the truth, according to John 8, 32. We follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The reason we want nothing to do with deception is because we are no longer children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, verse 3. We have no longer anything to do with the father of lies. So therefore, our attitude should be, of course I'll sign my contract. Of course I will honor. Even if I don't sign my contract, my plan is to honor this and I'll do it at all costs anyway. Now, I'll sign the contract to make you feel better about my promise, of course, but know that in my heart, that's not even an issue. That's not even a question. And Jesus, therefore, reminds his audience here that they shouldn't swear frivolous by heaven, earth, or Jerusalem, or anything else for the purpose of getting out of complete honesty. Or for the purpose of betraying people by saying later on, See, <laughs> I didn't invoke the name of God on this one. You should have been more attentive. No, he's saying that is sinful. That is deception. You're acting like the father of lies, not like our father who is in heaven. And in verse 35, Jesus gives a simple rationale for that. It's very simple. He says this, Whatever you say... However you word your vow, if you're doing it by Jerusalem, by the earth, or self, whatever, God is already a witness because he's everywhere. Whether you say the formalities or not, whether you raise your right hand or not, whether you place it in the Bible or on your chest, or even if you cross your finger, God is already watching. Why? Because he's in heaven, he's in earth, and Jerusalem is the capital of the new heaven and the new earth anyway, is what he's saying here. He is everywhere. And to make his point, Jesus even paraphrases Isaiah 66, verse 1, when God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So Jesus is making a very simple and clear point, saying, whether you invoke the witness of God or not, he is already in the transaction. Why? Because he's everywhere. So you shouldn't have to swear to God. You shouldn't have to invoke his name. Just say what you're going to do and fulfill your commitment. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.